Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so happy that you've joined me for today's show. Before we get going, let's start with a few announcements. First of all, my voice is still a little raspy from uh, that illness that I've had lately, and then yesterday I did three hours at the Kentucky Speech and Hearing Association annual convention, so if I saw you yesterday at Kisha, woohoo! such a great day had about 500 people so big full ballroom so that was a ton of fun for me and we talked about receptive language issues and one of my very favorite things to talk about and teach about so it was a great great day so thanks to those of you who were there for that secondly I want to mention that we are finishing up a big sale on courses and so if you are on my email list you've gotten that coupon code but if you've wanted to get my courses, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, which is a 12-hour comprehensive course for speech language pathologists and very ultra-committed parents. So that one, or Steps to Building Verbal Invitation in Toddlers, which walks you through a really sequential, logical approach for helping a toddler move from being nonverbal to using single words and short phrases. And then my new course that I did in 2016 is at Autism. Part one is recognizing autism, so walking through the DSM-5 criteria and helping you really understand what it takes for a child to get or receive uh, an official ASD diagnosis. And that's eye-opening. If you're a therapist and you've never done a course like that, you need to. You need to order that today. Because it's really, really, really going to take some of the guesswork out of would this kid get this diagnosis, would this kid not? A lot of times we feel like an autism diagnosis is very, very subjective, and it is, but it's not. (laughs) When you know the criteria, you can decide, does this child exhibit this characteristic? So part one of is it autism is about recognizing that uh, diagnosis part two is what do we do about it so interventions or treatment strategies it's a six-hour course again if you are in early intervention and if you feel sometimes confused like I don't know what my priority excuse me should be for this child who's who I think is on the spectrum who has lots of red flags excuse me let me clear my throat so sorry about that But if you have questions about that, if you need some confidence in establishing initial treatment plans for little kiddos who either have an autism diagnosis or you think will get that in the future, get part two of that course. And again, it will so help you organize your initial treatment plans and make you so much more effective with toddlers who are exhibiting that constellation of characteristics that make us know that their issues go beyond a late talker diagnosis, and their issues really, really seem to fall in autism-like tendencies. And some kids, again, will be borderline. They won't have enough of the official markers to get that diagnosis, and those are the kids that we can help even more (laughs) because they're borderline. And those are the kids, sometimes we don't give mild kids enough intervention We think, oh, they're mild kind of compared to a child who might have more severe or significant issues. And, you know, that's, in my opinion, kind of wrong. If we can take a kid who has a mild or even a mild to moderate delay and and really get in there and front load that intervention when they're young, we can change their whole entire little lives because we've gotten in there before something is too serious and really, really worked on it. And again, change them, change that little brain forever with really effective strategies that are research-based and have been so successful with lots and lots and lots of children. So um, get that course. And again, if you don't have the coupon code for that, it's easy. Just sign up to be on my email list, and you also get a free ebook with the Parent's Guide to Speech-Language Development with that. All right, so that was that announcement. Also, I forgot to mention on last week's podcast 
for this series that we are currently doing here on the podcast, This Kid Doesn't Play, Solutions for Common Problems, we're up to part four. I've been announcing a special coupon code just for podcast listeners, and it's podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, which will get you $10 off, excuse me, any single DVD or book purchase. So fantastic coupon code, usually that on some on books and DVDs, that ends up like 25-30% off the entire purchase price. So a great sale, so I wanted to mention that, and I did forget about uh, forget to say that on last week's show. The reason that's important is because of this. We are using information from my book, Teach Me to Play With You, for this series, and people have emailed me and said, I like the series, I really want the written version, which you've mentioned on the podcast. What's the name of that book again? And so, again, it's it, for for those of you <laughs> that I've not responded to in email, it's Teach Me to Play With You. And, again, don't forget to use that coupon code. It's this podcast, and so you can save yourself 10 bucks. All right, so let's get going with today's show. And I so apologize for my voice. Had I known that it was going to be this um, – abnormal with me being a little bit hoarse and coughing and clearing my throat I probably wouldn't have done the show today but we've already started so let's just keep moving forward all right remember that in this series we are taking a look at things that kids do or behaviors they exhibit which prevent them from playing with us and from truly interacting. And remember, the reason that play is so important for little kids is because that's how they learn everything. So when we have a child who is really reluctant or resistant to welcoming us as a play partner, it really robs him of the opportunity to advance his skills by learning from us and by interacting with us and by letting us teach him something or show him something. So it's really, really important when we have a kid like this that we try to address what's going on and we can use some really common sense, practical, easy to implement solutions. And sometimes as therapists, we make it too hard and we certainly can make it too hard for a parent who's trying desperately to find solutions and strategies that really, really work. So that's what this series is about. It's not only identifying the problem and then talking about possibly why a kid would be exhibiting that behavior, because if you understand the core or the root of the issue, again, it makes us more empathetic to that child so that we think and we know he's not just being a real stinker here. He's not just trying to get under my skin this is a real developmental difference that this child has. And, and remember, we're saying possible explanations. Without looking at any specific child, we can only guess what's going on because we're not able to see that kid and really analyze what's triggering the behavior, look at other factors, say, in a kid's environment, like look at all the other things that could go into a play with, come into play with a specific child. But there are generally explanations for why children may exhibit a particular issue. So that's what we'll be discussing. And then more importantly, we're going to talk about the ideas to try when a kid is um, resisting or, or showing this kind of problem in learning to play with you. So today let's talk about a really, um, I don't want to say common problem because this this is really limited to children with language delays. Uh, not all kids with language delays will use this particular strategy, but sometimes we'll see kids when they're trying to play with us, or it also happens when we are trying to teach them to do something with their hands, like sign language, where a child will try to use an adult's hand to operate the toy or perform the movement instead of doing it himself. And with signing, let me just say, it usually ha it happens like this. It doesn't look like they're not taking your hands and making you do the sign, but they just hold out their hands to you. <laughs> like, hey, I know I'm supposed to sign here, 
but I'm not exactly sure what to do. And in the past, you have grabbed my hands, meaning you, the child is, you know, we're we're kind of pretending here. This is what the kid would say if he or she could talk. I've known that in the past that I have just held my hands out and you have done this sign for me and this is less effort for me and this is what I'm going to do. And so (laughs) it's kind of a similar problem. Do you see the similarity there with a kid who might not know how to operate a toy but he's going to grab your hand to make you do it? Same thing with signing. He doesn't know how to sign so he's just going to put his little hands out there as if to say, hey, do it for me. So same kind of issue. So uh, This is also super, super related to kids who lead you to what they want to do, and then they really don't know what to do once they get there. So a kid who might grab, let's say you're in the den or your living area, and you know they want something from you because the kid walks up to you, grabs your hand, and pulls you into the kitchen maybe or into his room. And then sometimes once they get there, they don't even really know how to show you beyond that. They don't know how to point or to talk and say, hey, mom, Get me the cookies. I can't reach them. They're on the top shelf. Or, hey, Mom, I I want you to put this toy together for me. But, again, they don't know how to communicate beyond that leading point. So it's sort of the same root cause. Uh, And, again, these children usually don't. They're, They're not really talking as much yet, sometimes not at all. And they have really limited use of other kinds of ways to communicate other than that initial attempt that they make by grabbing your hands or leading you to something. Now, let me just go ahead and say, what are some possible explanations? Kids with markers or signs of autism do use this a lot. And it's it's one of the red flags that a therapist will look for when we're working with a child and seeing a child for therapy, or it's maybe even a question that a therapist might ask a parent, does he ever try to use your hands to do something or does he lead you, but then he doesn't really know what to do once he pulls you to what he wants. And again, that leading, let's not look at this or uh, a child grabbing your hands. Let's not look at it as totally you know, pathological or abnormal. Let's look at it as, hey, this is an introductory compensation that this child is using he's trying he's attempting he knows he needs you so it is a good first step and so we have to keep that in mind in that hey it's a marker that something's not quite right but at the same time it's so much better than a kid who doesn't initiate with you at all so at least this kid is in the right direction in understanding hey I can use this big person to help me accomplish something that I can't do on my own. And that's interaction. That's that's the beginning of communication, even if it's in that nonverbal way. So I do want to mention that and so that we are not looking at every single thing as, you know, this is wrong or this this means there's something, you know, terrible going on. It's a step in the right direction for a lot of kids. Some kids haven't been leaders, and by that I mean pulling a parent. They they haven't done much initiation of anything. So when I can see that they're starting to lead a parent, even if it doesn't end well, even if they are pulling a parent into the kitchen and the parent has no idea what they want, at least it's a start. So try to think about it that way. And that might be something if you're a therapist you can talk with a parent about. And it is uh, an area of concern for a kid, but at the same time, it, it's also a strength. So let's be sure that we're keeping it in the proper context. Now, let's talk about another explanation here. A lot of times children who use a parent's hand to operate a toy or try to pull a parent to something they want, they have motor planning problems. And what does that mean? That means that a child doesn't know how to play with a toy or doesn't know how to know how to follow through. But the rest of that motoric part or that next action But he does recognize, hey, somebody bigger than I am can do that for me. And so a lot of times that motor planning piece is not as recognizable in children yet because they, you know, they're doing things like running or jumping or, you know, they may be super, super active. So it's hard for a parent to see that there's actually a motor problem. And so it might look like a kid is just resisting a toy, but you don't recognize, hey, it's because he doesn't know how to do it. He can't make his little hands do what he wants it to do. So he can't plan that next little action that it would require 
to make the toy work like he wants it to work. And so in the past, he's seen you be able to do that, and he knows that. And so he's trying to get, you know, the fastest way to what he wants to happen, which is have the toy activate. So he just grabs your hand to do it. So that's an explanation, too. So we've kind of looked at kids who are on the spectrum or who have characteristics of autism might do this. Any other child who's not on, doesn't have autism, but does have a, a coordination problem with his hands. And again, it might be coordination in the in kind of at the brain level, if you want to think about it that way, that he can't plan. It's not that he can't use his little hands. It's not that he can't even, sometimes it's not even that he can't figure out how to do the toy. He just can't, there's a disconnect. He can't make his little hands do what he wants them to do. That's kind of the motor planning piece. The other piece would be that cognitively he doesn't understand what to do next. So he's reaching out for assistance. So it, this could be a part or an indication of a child's cognitive delay. I don't know how to solve this problem. I don't know what to do next. I need you to step in and intervene for me. Sometimes children who use this type of behavior may also be overreactive to touch. And remember on last week's show, we talked about tactile defensiveness or a kid who's really sensitive to how things feel. And so operating a particular toy or using, uh, we talked last week about various textures, like something messy play with Play-Doh or finger paint or something that just icks the kid out. For some reason, he feels totally uncomfortable with that substance on his skin. Sometimes kids who have tactile defensiveness will also opt to have an adult's hand, <coughs> excuse me, perform what they want them to perform. So those are our possible explanations for why a kid might be using a grown-up's hands to do what he wants to do instead of himself. So what ideas should we try? What can we do for a kid like this? Well, it all kind of boils down to the child has to learn how to use his own body and so we have to back up a little bit and meet him where he is, which I talk a lot about <laughs> on this show. And so really we know that when he's trying to operate a toy and he can't do it, that there's something about that that's just too complex. And when something's too hard for kids, they either give up or they try to find a way to make it work out. And in this case, that's what a child has done best to get you to do it for him. But we do know that there's some kind of coordination issue or motor planning issue or tactile defensiveness or something that's gone on that we need to help him learn to overcome, that we need to give him a solution for. So lots of times it is just a kid really, really learning how to use his own body. So finger plays or little songs or games that have hand motions are fantastic for getting a kid started and for helping him learn how to use his body in a more predictable, controlled, planned way. So let's just think about some simple games that we might try. Things like patty cake, you know, patty cake, patty cake, you know, baker's man, bake me a cake as fast as you can. So what are you doing during that, that part of that little song? You are clapping. So the kid is clapping with you. And then whatever version you use next, you know, I've heard so many different variations of that little game. But, you know, one of the versions is, you know, uh, pat it, prick it, mark it with a B, put it in the oven for a baby and me. So pat it, you're clapping, you know, prick it. It's like you're using your index finger to Make a little hole in your other hand, so prick it and then mark it with a B, and you could do an outline of a B in your, you know, with one finger, um, say in your right hand, in the, your open palm of your left hand, and then put it in the oven for a baby and me. You're clapping on that or pretending like you're putting it in the oven. So really simple little way to do it. Another version of patty cake is roll them up, roll them up, throw them in the pan. And so for roll them up, roll them up, a kid is rolling his little hands right in front of him and then throw them in the pan. You know, he throws his hands up. So can you see how teaching a kid a little game like that where he has to use his hands in a very predictable, planned way would help him eventually learn how to use it to perform actions with toys? or something that's a little bit more complex from a motor perspective. 
So a game like Patty Cake, a game like If You're Happy and You Know It. And that little song has as many versions and as many verses (laughs) as you can come up with. You know, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're happy and you know it, shout hooray. Do a little hand pump with that where a kid is pumping his little fist in the air as, you know, you're saying hooray. You know, if you're happy and you know it, pat your head. Oh, my goodness. You can just come up with verse after verse after verse with that song but your your end result is the kid is imitating your motor action and again he's doing it in that really predictable planned way which facilitates planning in general Uh, so if you need some little ideas for that teach me to play with you that I've already mentioned the book that this information is from is a fantastic resource so that you can get lots and lots and lots of ideas for little games that you might play which will help a kid learn how to imitate those actions other things that you can do are playing games where you if we're a kid is using both hands and that's called bilateral coordination especially by our colleagues that are OTs and bilateral meaning that a kid uses both of his hands and is using it together kids with motor planning issues and even kids with muscle tone issues like cerebral palsy or if a kid has had a stroke or some other kind of assault to his Uh, motor system which neurologically so again it's something that originates in his brain but it makes one part of his body not work as well and a lot of times that is uh, one side so it's hemispheric so one side of his body say his left side is not as you know it might be his bad side as compared to his right side so when we have kids like that who can either have a real physical obvious difference in their muscle tone and the way that they're able to use one side of their body versus another kids can have a problem like that and again it could be that motor planning issue where it's just a coordination problem between coordinating what his little how uh, the message that his brain sends to his little hands like hey you know use use your hands together and a lot of times kids with motor planning issues have real difficulty getting both sides to work together so what are some things you could do you could pop bubbles using two hands which is fun you know clapping instead of or smacking the bubbles instead of you know doing it with an isolated little index finger you're making that a big gross motor activity where you're really getting both sides of the body involved wheelbarrow walking is fantastic for this and that's where a kid puts his little hands down on the floor and you hold his legs and he has to move his hands like he is the wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, however you like to say that word. Uh, That's a fun thing. Now, a lot of times kids can't do that when they're two. They have to be a little bit older before they do that, but that's a great bilateral, you know, both sides of the body activity. Even something like playing with balloons or balls where a kid is using two hands together. Just, Just think about that. Think about the different kinds of toys that, or activities where you can make sure that a kid is using both sides of his little uh, body there. I like my Ziploc bags. If you have seen any of my DVDs or any of my courses, you know that I put a lot of my toys that I'm going to use with children during therapy sessions in those two-and-a-half-gallon Ziploc bags because they're see-through and kids know what they're going to get, and it helps choice-making because they can really look but then the activity is contained <laughs> because it's all there together in the bag. But I love those Ziploc bags because kids have such fantastic, predictable opportunities to learn how to zip and unzip the bag. And you really need to teach them that they hold the bag with one hand and they zip the bag or unzip the bag with the other hand. And that's a, that's a little higher level than some kids have done before. A lot of kids you'll see who have these motor planning problems don't really know how to use both hands together you know they'll try to uh, maybe scribble on a piece of paper with a marker and the paper is just going everywhere they don't know that they can put their other hand down to stabilize the paper you know and we kind of call that the helper hand be sure that you're using your helper hand which is something that OTs will say a lot so that's another indicator that a child needs some practice that he hasn't learned how to coordinate both sides of his body Other things you can do here are just make the toy simpler that you're trying, that the child is trying to play with. And again, the 
the purpose here is so that he learns how to play with the toy more independently so that he doesn't have to have your physical assistance. So you may have to drop back a little bit and play with toys that are a little easier. So simpler cause and effect toys. Look for um, toys that have maybe the same properties or the same features that the child is trying to do and figure out, okay, is it that he can't connect to these trains? He doesn't understand how to take one train in one hand and one train in the other hand and hook it, or he doesn't get that, again, it just, the problem is he's not using his hands together. He doesn't understand how the magnets work on the train, you know, anything. So just it could be that he's trying to do uh, – Oh, let's say a little girl is wants to play with a baby doll and she can't get the clothes off or clothes off are usually a lot easier than clothes on but that's the problem she can't use her hands well enough to figure out how am I going to get this shirt on this baby doll so look for you know in that case you got to make that simpler so for a kid who's really trying to take put that shirt on you need to first make sure can she pull that shirt off that baby doll let's look at ways for her to figure out how to manipulate this baby doll's clothes, but we got to start with something that's easier for her. So anything, any toy like that, that a kid is using your hands for, try to think, okay, what, what would be an easier way for him to still work on this and get practice? It's not so complicated that he needs me. So let me figure out how to make this simple enough for him to learn how to do it on his own. So it's, that's kind of a fail-proof way to do it. It's harder to kind of talk about than it is to implement because it's harder for me to give you really specific examples, <laughs> which may not be relevant for a child that you're working with. But if you'll just think about looking at the toy and thinking, okay, what would come first? What, what, what's he trying to do here and why can't he do it? Sometimes it's just as easy as showing the kid over and over and over how to do it, where you might do some hand-over-hand assistance where, you know, usually he's taking your hands to make you do it. Well, you take his hands and make him do it. And you just do that. Oh, gosh, sometimes it takes a dozen or so times where you're really establishing that motor pattern. And then you maybe don't have your hands right on his hands. You you still are there to offer support, but let's say you're kind of holding his arm or his elbow. And he still feels you there to guide him if he needs it. But it's not the same as completely doing everything. And then when you can, remove your physical assistance altogether so that you're providing the support and he feels secure that, hey, if I need her, I can always grab her hand and make her do it. But at the same time, you're helping him move toward independence with that. Um, So gradually reduce your health there. And that's certainly something that has worked for me over and over and over. Let's talk about kids who... Uh, we talked before about sign language, kind of adapt that almost helpless uh, mentality or physical position where they kind of just hold their hands out and wait for you to do it, for you to perform the sign for them. In that case, you're just going to have to make your hands less available to him or show him again how to do the sign that he's trying to do, really model it. But he's almost, in this case, telling you not only I can't do it, but you have provided so much help for me that I don't even want to learn how to do it on my own. So that's a big indicator to you that you need to pull it back a little bit and do more, do less physical prompting. So lots of visual modeling, and you do some hand-over-hand to get him to sign initially, but you stop well before you have done in the past so that he doesn't get that learned helplessness, so that he doesn't, begin to think, well, the only way, the easiest way for me to do this is just to hold my hands out and she's going to perform the sign anyway. And so that's just the easiest way for me to get through this and get what I want. And so I'm just going to hold my hands out for her. So that just kind of tells you where, what's happened with that kid. So you just hold your hands behind your back maybe, or just model the sign and and don't automatically reach for his hands. See what he can do. Sometimes when I've been working with kids like this, It's because my physical proximity is so close to them that they're reaching out and grabbing my hand. So if I just back up a little bit or if I maybe get on my knees or stand or do something where I'm not sitting so close to them, they'll try to go ahead and sign because they can't reach my hands as easily. And for those of you who've never tried something like that, you may be thinking, it cannot be that simple. It cannot be as easy as me being less available to him. Yes, it can. (laughs) 
So think about that and, and your little guys who are just kind of those habitual, you know, hold my hands up so you can do it for me. Try to try to be a little bit less available for that. Now, you still want to be connected to them and you still want to be um, available to them and you're still super participatory. You're looking at them, you're smiling, you're there, you're totally connected. You're just not going to do everything for them. So those are good, good recommendations for a child like that. All right, let's move on to the next problem that we're talking about here and this really is a big one for kids who also have red flags for autism so a child who uses self-stimulatory behavior so kids who have repetitive movements and remember self-stims and this is from my is it autism course where we think about self-stimulatory behaviors in three categories. Kids can stem or, and again, if you're a parent and that's a new term for you, this means that a kid uses a behavior that's kind of unusual. And again, stereotypic means that it's repetitive. He does it over and over and over so much that it looks a little funny. It's a little bit odd when you're looking at it. Or And the self-stimulatory part means that there's he, he's getting an internal bump or there's something about that behavior that he really likes so and it it stimulates him and it it provides um, positive feedback to that child for whatever reason so what are some and I started talking about this self-stimulatory behaviors occur in three different contexts it can be that a kid uses a body movement on his own little body so he might flap his hands so hand flapping is pretty common he might repetitively blink his little eyes he might use uh, move his hands or flick his fingers in a way in front of his eyes so those would be or or he might rock back and forth those are body movements that are self-stimulatory the second category is kids self-stem with objects so they might spin an object they might uh, rub an object so something that they're doing again it's a repetitive movement and you can't really figure out the reason there that's the self-stimulatory part uh, and so anything that he might do with an object over and over a lot of kids will do this when they want to get down on their little bellies or on their tummies and they put their eyes really really close to a toy like a train or a car and they roll it back and forth in front of their little eyes that's a self-stimulatory behavior that they're using with an object the third kind of stem would be a verbal stem or a vocal stem and these would be kids who hum or say a particular phrase or sentence repetitively or just something again with the way that they're speaking just makes it stand out to you and you think why is he saying that over and over and over that's a type of stem and again this is frequently associated with autism or it could be a kid who has a cognitive issue or even sometimes kids will do this when there are other sensory processing differences um, so that's certainly one one explanation for that. And again, without we're looking at this kind of as a global issue. There are all kinds of reasons that a kid may specifically hand flap or specifically watch something right in front of his eye. So it's really hard to talk about it in as concise a way as we need to do today just because of time constraints with this so know that there are just lots of variations and lots of possibilities for why a kid could be doing this but again it's real these kinds of behaviors are really really red flags for autism so we don't want to ignore them and many many times parents will think that these kinds of things that their children are doing are just um, their own little personalities or their own little uh, idiosyncratic behaviors, meaning that's just him, that's just what he does. You know, I've heard grandparents refer to hand flapping like that. They'll say things like, oh, he's just my little angel. He's just about to fly away. And they don't really get what's going on with hand flapping. And again, that's not bad. I'm not being derogatory about parents or grandparents who don't understand that that is a self-stimulatory behavior they just don't know they've had they haven't had any experience with that and so and it's um just out of their realm of possibility for that particular child that that could indicate that something is 
not typical about his or her development. So sensory processing issues, again, are, and, and they include these self-stimulatory behaviors. They are so varied and so prolific that it's hard to talk about each specific action, but we want to make sure that we are talking to parents and caregivers and other folks involved with children you know, when you see something like one of those behaviors that you are calling it what it is and identifying it and saying, you know, it's not really that he's, and you have to be careful about how you say this, and I don't even want to give an example that would be considered rude or, again, derogatory to a family, but you have to gently say, you know, I don't see it as a little personality quirk. This is my take on this, and explain what the kid is doing, so whatever his movement is and a possible explanation for that. And then you're always going to finish with, you know, he processes incoming sensory information differently or he likes how his body feels when he does this and that's an internal process that's happening and we he can't really tell us why he finds this particular movement that he's doing over and over and over so intriguing but these are our guesses here. And so you really want to, again, put it in context so that a parent understands possibly why a kid is doing what he's doing. And so um, you'll, you'll give them just a better idea of what's going on. All right. Um, sometimes kids use these things, to th these self-stimulatory behaviors. They'll use them either to help them calm down when they're really, really excited, or sometimes kids do it when they're excited to even rev themselves up even more. So it's really hard to identify what's going on with a child without looking at that particular child in that specific circumstance. But as a therapist, you'll need to help a parent identify that and see that. And you might say, well, he's you know, really on his toes because he's so excited and he likes how this feels and, you know, this is just him dancing around and this lets him, us know that, you know, he's getting a lot of input to his little feet and he really, really likes that and that's something that his body craves. And so, again, when you're providing that explanation, you can help them understand a child's behavior um, and help them understand, is he doing this as a way to calm down or a way to rev up or is it because he's excited or he's overexcited? And you can help a parent really... Uh, put their finger on what's going on. So what are some ideas to try when a kid is doing this kind of repetitive behavior? You know, our first inclination is always to say stop, <laughs> especially if a behavior calls attention to itself in a negative way. But really, that doesn't always work. Instead of eliminating self-stems, we need to replace them because we know that this kid has a need on some level. So for a kid who's flapping her hands, clapping, might be um, a replacement kind of behavior for that. So instead of saying, you know, stop flapping your hands and, you know, we don't flap or whatever you might, you know, silly thing that we all try to, we all try to say these kinds of things. Try just redirecting it. See what you can come up with. See if there's a behavior that would look a little less um, likely to call negative attention. If a kid, say, a kid who likes to maybe bite herself, who really is in, you know, for, she doesn't really realize she's help, she's hurting herself, that self-injurious behavior piece, she may need something else that's safer for her to bite on. If a kid likes to <coughs> spin a lot of things, you know, that means they, they like that visual input maybe. So you're going to stimulate them with toys that provide the visual input when they can't spin them or teach them alternative behaviors to do with toys that they habitually like to spin. So look for ways that give the kid the same kind of sensation that he's seeking, but again, look a little more socially acceptable. Now, some families aren't bothered or don't really think about re repetitive or self-stem behaviors in this way. And if a parent is acting like, hey, that's just who he is, and I don't really think we should do anything about that, I don't really try to get on to him or correct him or try to get him to do something differently, that's a parent's choice. And they may feel really differently about things when their child is very young at two and at three than they do when they're eight or nine and sometimes parents just aren't ready to address these things they're not they're just not in a place where or they just may be so laid back about it that it doesn't seem like it's a problematic 
issue to them yet. And when you have a parent like that, you don't want to be so overbearing that you are constantly the therapist who is nagging at them to address every little thing that their child does. And frankly, that's overwhelming. I mean, sometimes so many parents will say to me, hey, I get what you're saying about this whole flapping her hands or rocking or holding her body, that body posturing, and, you know, she might be really flexing her feet or throwing herself backwards when she gets really, really excited, you know, kind of in a happy way. But they may say, you know, I just don't care about that. I just want her to talk. And so here's the thing. (laughs) There are studies that tell us that stems really don't get in the way of learning how to communicate. And so if you have a parent like that, and that if you need the reference for that, that's in the autism course, and it's a study um, by Watka, and associates. So if you need that specific reference, you can email me for that, or just get that course, and you can find it. And there's we have a big discussion section about that. But if there's a parent who's who's really not wanting to address that, that's okay too. I do not try to impose my own <laughs> uh, priorities on a family. And if they if it doesn't bother them, I think, man, they're going to be living with this and this child for a long time. I'm not going to be so picky that I tease apart every single thing that this sweet little child is doing. And I don't want to make this mom feel any worse about what's going on developmentally with her kid than she already does. So if you have a family that wants to kind of not pay attention to that, that's okay too. So be sure that you are respecting a family's priorities when you are um, working with a situation like that. Now, let me say one more thing. Uh, And I think I've already said this, but let me just say it one more time and then we'll move on. If a child really seems to be stuck in a behavior like rocking or spinning, try at least to make it more communicative or communicative so that he includes you. So for kids that like to rock or spin, I try to play games with them, social games where we are doing that kind of motion together. So at least we've made that interactive. So a kid who's standing there rocking from side to side, I get right in front of them and start just kind of singing, you know, rock, 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 Brady, or, you know, whatever the kid's name happens to be. Or um, I'll know, gosh, you know, they really like that feeling of their body moving through space or they really like how this feels on their little feet. I'm going to make sure that we are doing lots of running and stomping and jumping and whatever it is that that kid seems to need through his or her little body. So that's certainly something you can do too. All right, let's move on to the next problem in play, which is a super common one, throwing toys. Oh, my goodness. Now, some level of throwing is normal. Kids learn how to throw. (laughs) They learn how to use their little arms, and they need practice to be able to do that. But we want them to throw things that are meant to be thrown, like balls, like um, a toy that, again, the purpose, part of the purpose there, like a balloon, is throwing. It could be an airplane that flies or some other toy that, again, throwing is acceptable. So, Not all of this, again, like we said before, is uh, bad or pathological. Every little thing that a kid does is not a problem. And so, and and again, toddlers are going to throw things because that's just part of experimentation and maturing and learning how to play. But let's look at what happens when a kid throws everything. And we certainly, as a therapist, have all had that situation where you can't get a kid to play with a toy functionally because all he seems to want to know how, all he seems to want to do is throw it. So look at motor planning again. Is it that he can't operate the toy yet? Many, many times kids with motor planning issues can't open or close or push or pull or hook or catch or even put their fingers in the right place to get started with a toy to activate it and play with it properly. So be sure that you're showing that kid over and over and over how to operate that toy. And remember we talked about you're going to show him, first you're going to tell him how to do it, you're going to show him how to do it, and then if he can't play with the toy, you'll help him do it. So there is a level of physical assistance involved there. So make sure that you are addressing that. It could be, again, back to our earlier issue. This kid is overreactive to touch. There's some tactile defensiveness going on, but he can tolerate the toy long enough to pick it up and launch it across the room. So go back to the previous show and listen to the suggestions that we made for kids and that we discussed on last show about kids who are sensitive to touch and implement some of those strategies. 
it could be that the child has uh, language comprehension delays and he doesn't understand a command like don't throw or no throwing. And so you may just have to really teach that limit. And so for some kids who repeatedly throw toys, you just may have to put a toy up. After you've said no throwing, and if that doesn't seem to work after you know, several instances where that's occurred, you may say, when you throw a toy, it's all done. We're, we're not playing with that anymore. If you throw it, I'm taking it away. Now, some kids with language comprehension difficulties will not understand that, even though that's pretty simple. And so you really do have to use this strategy judiciously, you know, to know if it makes sense where the kid is functioning developmentally. Uh, but for some kids, you know, they really, they, they're going to test your limits. They're going to see what happens. And so once you put a toy away, and you can either do it where it's out of sight so that they don't see it and don't fuss or complain, but sometimes you have to put it up where they can still see it and they know that it's there and they know that they can't have it because they threw it. And and you don't want to be a total ogre about this so that you don't give it back, you know, for three days or something like that. But, you know, if they've thrown something repeatedly, you may say, you know, after you've done a couple of instances of no throwing, you know, we don't throw that book or whatever the toy happens to be, uh, where you just say, that toy's going up here, you know, no throwing, we can't play with it until you're ready to, you know, and say whatever the right way is to play. You know, books are for reading, not for throwing. So when you want to look at the book, I will get it back down for you, but for right now, you threw it, it's up here. And again, don't go on and on and on. Use the level of language that's simple enough for a child to understand, but still enough to get your point across. So think about that one as well. Um, Let's see, other ideas that we want to explore. Some kids will throw because they don't want to play with a toy anymore and they don't know how to tell you that and they don't know how to transition to another activity. So they they kind of know, if I throw it, this can be done. <laughs> so this might be a kid who that you've used a strategy like let's put it away if you're just going to throw it. So it's kind of an escape or an avoidance or a way to move on. And so analyze that. See, oh gosh, does he only throw toys when he's ready to stop playing with this? Does he throw the, you know, really kind of think what triggers that throwing and see if you can come up with an explanation and a possible solution there. So let's look at some other things we could try. Sometimes kids will throw toys when they're not really interested in the toy, and a lot of times it's because they don't know how to use it. So we've already talked about showing them how to use it. And sometimes it kind of goes beyond this that it's a kid doesn't understand uh, very much about what's going on in his environment at all. So he's throwing the toy because he's developmentally immature and his skills are delayed in that area. And then he also doesn't interact with people very well. So for some of those kids, you have to put the toys away and start with you being the toy. And I did a series about that. I think it was in 2013, 2014. So scroll back through the archives. of the show and find the title that says something like be the toy and there's three or four little shows that I did about that and look at that and see how can I get him interested in being with people how can I get that connection going first and developmentally that's where you need to meet that kid and get that going before you establish how well he plays with things or with objects or toys so look at that now remember the book teach me to play with you is the first several chapters are filled with ideas for getting that interaction going and there's some ideas in that book as well for toys those early toys but the biggest benefit for that particular resource is being able to giving you lots and lots of ideas for helping a child learn how to interact and engage with you so take a look at that Uh, We've talked about when a kid throws a toy, or we talked about it in the last section, where they're really using your hands to operate a toy. It's because the toy's too hard, and for some reason it's just frustrating, and so they think, let me just launch this across the room so I don't have to mess with it anymore. So remember, in that instance, you always want to what? Back up. (laughs) You want to find something that's a little bit easier and a lot more fun and not as frustrating so think about the complexity of the toys that you're using with a child and analyze, gosh, does he really only throw something when he doesn't know how to do it? And that will give you some insight for that child as well. 
uh, remember, a kid might be throwing to get a reaction from you. And so if he wants that reaction, if he wants your attention, let's say that you've been watching TV or you've been checking email if you're a parent, and you notice that your kid is throwing a lot of things, that could just be a bid for your attention and your participation. So what do you do? Do you remove everything so he can't throw it? No. <laughs> you take that as your invitation to play and your invitation to interact with him. And we can't do that 24-7, but gosh, we can do it a lot. And so it is kind of a wake-up call. If you have a kid who just keeps doing these irritating things that you think, man, he is just staying in trouble today. What is up with this? A lot of times it's because we haven't given them enough one-on-one -on -one attention. We haven't prioritized their need to for us for us to be really completely 100% involved with what they're doing so a lot of times you are just going to have to take that as your big wake-up call and man he's throwing because he doesn't know how else to get my attention so let me stop what I'm doing get down on the floor play with him for 30 minutes make him feel loved and cherished and that he is my number one priority here and a lot of times behaviors like throwing or doing something else that's annoying or even nasty or, or aggressive will stop because the kid has gotten enough attention from you. Um, and sometimes if a kid, you can tell if a kid's throwing on purpose to get your attention because they not only throw the toy, but they're looking at you while they throw it. So look at that. See if, gosh, this is limit testing with, you know, what are you going to do now? And he's kind of working through that, that whole disciplinary process. Or, again, look at it to see if it's just his way to engage your attention and his way of saying, please stop messing with your phone and pay attention to me. Uh, so think about those kinds of things, too. And remember, if a kid isn't acting upset or looking at you when he's throwing, he's not doing it to be manipulative or the, to, you know, get your attention or whatever. He, he may not even be throwing the toy on purpose. A lot of our little guys with low muscle tone will drop a toy, and I've seen a parent, you know, kind of misread that before or even a therapist because the kid will drop it and sort of move on. And sometimes that's just because it's uh, motorically too hard. Uh, so be sure that you're looking at, you know, how can we work with this kid to increase his coordination or his strength or whatever. You'll probably need an OT or a PT for that, but that's certainly something worth considering. All right. We have time for one more problem today. Boy, we have moved forward with these uh, problems. So this has been a great, uh, uh, a great use of our time today. Let's do one more. Let's talk about busy, busy, busy kids. These are kids, I call this in the book, uh, in this last chapter where we're listing problems in play. I call this kids who are in constant motion. So you know what these kids look like, right? <laughs> they can't sit still. They are constantly on the move. They're running or jumping or climbing or spinning or crashing. A lot of these kids have no fear, and they may not even cry when you think, boy, he hit his head pretty hard. What's going to happen? And then they jump up like nothing even phased them. So a lot of kids are like that um, as toddlers. These are kids who probably also have a really short attention span. These are kids who might play with a toy for two seconds and then move on to something else and then on to something else and on to something else. This might be a kid who needs constant supervision since she gets hurt or she breaks things or destroys things pretty easily. These are kids that a lot of times don't understand your rules and they don't listen or respond when you give them a directive like stop or no or some other kind of limitation on their behaviors. Uh, and sometimes kids will even do things that, like we mentioned before, walk on their toes or they're doing whatever they can to feel even more feedback or more pressure. So possible explanations. Kids like this, OTs call them sensory seekers, meaning that they just need lots and lots and lots of input to their little bodies before they feel calm and regulated and in that just right place. So sensory seekers, again, are sometimes problematic for parents because they are just constantly on the go and it kind of wears you out from the time you get up till the time you go to or that kid goes down or goes to bed because if he's not asleep he is on the go 
So really look at that. With kids like this, they're just high energy. You need to provide lots and lots and lots of opportunities for him to get that feedback that his little body is craving. So you may have to really adjust your routines and your expectations, knowing that a kid, this is just who he is. So he's got to go. He's got to have some space to run. He's got to have maybe uh, toys that would facilitate that, so like a trampoline. If you don't have, you know, there are little trampolines. If you don't have space in your backyard or your basement for the full-sized one, you can always get those smaller ones that are um, just, you know, so little that it's just space enough for one toddler on there, and there's a bar so they can hold on to that for jumping. So that's a a great strategy. Kids like this, I I talk to parents about let's get him outside as much as we can. You know, let's. If we don't have space in the backyard where he can safely run, let's get to a park or some other enclosed space or, you know, your mom's house or a neighbor's house or somewhere where we can just let this kid go. Many times kids' behaviors improve significantly when we have planned opportunities for 20 or 30 minutes of that kind of rambunctious anything goes play. So we get that going and then they're calm for a few hours and then we do it again. So we're interspersing movement throughout the day in plan little sequences. Uh, occupational therapists will call this a sensory diet. And so you may need an OT to help you figure that out and help you uh, identify what's going on. Now, some kids will move when, like this when they are overstimulated. So sometimes we'll see a kid who's really, really sleepy and who needs to calm down and get himself ready to go to sleep, that they just almost have to work themselves into a frenzy before their little bodies can relax. You know, that's kind of, I call it, uh, you know, he's a kid that has to crash. So sometimes kids will even have such a problem regulating like this that they have to get themselves so worked up and cry and cry and cry and cry until they just can't cry anymore and they're just exhausted from that but that's the only way their little bodies and brains can settle down and you really need an OT to help you figure that out and help you identify what you could do to help a kid self-regulate a little better a lot of times these kids also have comprehension or receptive language delays so they have been in such constant motion and they are so busy giving their little bodies what they need that they haven't paid enough attention to people to understand what words mean. So they haven't linked meaning yet. So with these kinds of kids, things where you're saying stop, don't run, come back, they don't even process. They don't understand what those commands mean yet. So you're going to have to work really hard on getting that kid in a settled down, calm, relaxed state more of the time so that he can begin to pay attention to you. And once he really learns how to listen, that when he'll start to associate meanings and uh, understand what words what words really, really mean. And so for those kinds of kids, that regulatory piece is really, really important. Uh, and remember that you can use a lot of the games in Teach Me to Play With You. A lot of those little games involve running and chasing and tickling and swinging and jumping. So it's a good way to provide the movement that a kid needs, but also also teach them how to interact with you. So look at that. See how you can make that interactive and communicative. Now, uh, we've talked about this already, but let me mention it just in the last few minutes. Sometimes kids will do so much better with you after they've had an opportunity like that as, as you know, a teacher or a grandmother might say, let's let him get his wiggles out. So let's let's do what we can to... Give him what he needs, and then we're going to try our sit-down activity. So try to do, and what I talk about every time I teach a live conference for therapists, is try to adopt a move-sit, move-sit philosophy. So you're not going to sit down and play with him, with these kinds of kids who are in constant motion, until he's had ample opportunity to really move, 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 move. And even sometimes when those kids are sitting down, they still need to have some kind of movement going. So I hold some of those kids so that they can calm down with that body-on-body contact. But sometimes I hold them just so I can jiggle them as we're playing with a toy together. We're get, I'm giving them the movement they need, but I'm still kind of holding them there with me. Um, so be sure that you're looking at that. Sometimes children who are constantly on the move like this are really overstimulated. So maybe something like offering 
a cold drink or a chewy snack will be regulatory for them. Uh, so that's certainly an idea you can try. And let's finish up with this. With kids who are constantly in motion, you have to adjust your expectations. You have to modify the environment so that we don't have to police our homes as often. So again, look at that where you're adjusting what, um, adjusting your home so that you are giving the kid what he needs and so that he is not in trouble from that constant need for movement all day long. All right, so remember, if you needed a review of any of those strategies, get your hands on the book, Teach Me to Play With You, because you are going to get all kinds of good ideas from that. And don't forget the coupon code. It's podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to save $10 off any single DVD or book. All right, so that's it for this week. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join me. Have a great week. Bye-bye.